Welcome back to the Free From Wall Street podcast. This is Stephen Libman. I have a special uh, replay. Take a listen. Let me know what you think. And don't forget to go to integrityhg.com. Sign up for the Investor Club so you can see all the deals that we have in our pipeline and what we have done in the past. Welcome to the Free From Wall Street podcast, where we share how we have done over $200 million in real estate deals to create preserve and pass on generational wealth without the roller coaster ride of the stock market. If you're ready to start investing with purpose, visit freefromwallstreet.com. But for now, let's dive into this episode. Thank you for joining us today on this journey. I am pleased to be joined today with another incredible guest, Stephen Livman. Steve, what's going on? How are you today? Doing well, Yona. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to get together with you and chat all things real estate and life related. As you know, I just landed in uh, South Carolina. So we used to be neighbors and now we are neighbors via Zoom only. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely give me a reason to come visit South Carolina. That's for sure. Another reason. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> it's a great location. Well, I'm glad that you've, uh, you know, getting acclimated down there. Uh, I'm sure by the time this episode airs, you will have been fully uh, a Carolinian. Uh, in, and in hopefully the, get a few rounds of golf in too. Well, on that goes so. without saying. Right? <laughs> when you live next to a golf course, it's hard not to. But you have to give a little, um, a little introduction, uh, just a little background context to to who you are, what you do. Um, I'll let you uh, do that. But just you know, from from what I would share is that you are the founder, co-founder of Integrity Holdings Group, which is a real estate investment development company. You, I want to actually get into this. We spoke about this in person once about how, why you transition more into multifamily and self-storage and commercial from, from the, the single family flipping business that you had that was very successful. Let's get into that a little bit later, but tell us a little more about, uh, about who's Steve Lubin. Yeah. So I graduated from Boston University in 2004. I got into a couple of different sales roles. I enjoyed being around people and face-to-face sales. Got into real estate probably, I guess, 13 years ago now, 12, 13 years ago now, at first as an agent. So I was showing houses and walking buyers around and doing that stuff. And, and then I started to really niche down as a broker and started to look for investment properties for cash buyers. I was doing a good job locating those deals. They weren't hard to find in 2007, right? And then as we started to grow in that business, I started thinking, wow, I'm finding all these great deals and making a lot of other people money when they're flipping houses. Maybe I can do this myself. And uh, partnered with Travis Cotter, my my business partner, uh, 11 years ago. And then we started doing some wholesales and some flips and started on the residential side. We were finding those deals. We were capitalizing on them. We built that company to doing, uh, you know, somewhere between ten and twenty deals a month, depending on the month. Wow. So it was, it was pretty, yeah. It got pretty robust. It was also a cash eating machine, you know, very transactional, very highly right. taxed. And then we started to look at, well, how do I save myself some taxes? How do I not partner with Uncle Sam on every deal? And we started looking into rental and passive income and got into multifamily and self-storage. So now we do commercial real estate only. We no longer do residential. We've fully transitioned over the last couple of years. We have, you know, by the end of next quarter, we'll have about $150 million of assets under management. And that's a variety of two asset classes, self-storage facilities and multifamily. And the reason for that is, you know, we are anti-volatility. And, you know, my dad passed away about seven years ago. He lost 
probably half of his net worth in the downturn of the stock market and didn't live long enough to ride it back up. I know a lot of people lost their shirts in 2007 and 8, but typically now they're doing as well, if not better than they were back mm -hmm. then. Right. The problem is, is if you pass away at the bottom of that cycle, you don't get to ride it back up. And it started making me think, well, how do I insulate my family legacy? Right? How do I create generational wealth, but maintain it and sustain it? And that was kind of what you were referring to before. How did we make that transition and why did right. we do it? And that's really why we needed to find something that was less volatile, more stable, more consistent than what Wall Street offered. And right. this is where we landed. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense for people who aren't familiar with you know the differences between, as you said, the transactional real estate, which I think a lot of people start from the brokerage side and then transition into more transactional. They find a good deal and like, well, I'm making some money. Let's put that into a, let's put that into a deal. I see them finding these deals for my clients, do that, and then just kind of that snowballs for a lot of people and takes off into a way where they don't realize that they may be making a lot of money, but they're getting taxed at such a high rate. That Crush. it's literally like you said, <laughs> giving, you know, sometimes close to half of your money away in taxes. How did you, I mean, make that realization that there's another way? So it's really just the same way that we got into flipping in the first place. It was just self-education, self-growth, trying to figure out, you know, what smarter people than ourselves are doing and replicating that process. You know, that there's nothing new under the sun, as they say. So it's, how do you get to where you're going and who can you follow that has already kind of blazed the trail there? So it was mentors. It was uh, reading a lot of books. You know, at one point, you know, if you read uh, Tax Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright, it really starts to shed right. some aha moments on you, go, recognizing that the tax code isn't there to penalize you necessarily. If you use it to your, to your benefit, you can really accelerate the wealth building process by basically partnering with the IRS and doing what they want you to do so that you pay less in taxes. Right? Right. I mean, it's incentivizing you for, for doing certain activities. Right. That's basically all they're, all they're trying to do. And one of those ways is you know what you do for a living. And I think last year you saved us, I don't know how many millions, but it was, it was multiple millions of dollars in, uh, in write-offs that we didn't even get to use all of them. Now we're carrying them forward. We'll do more and more of those. So you know, there are ways and you teach people some of those ways that you can minimize your tax burden. And it wasn't at first, let's fully shut down the residential business. It was, let's right. use it as a complement so that we can pay less in taxes on the residential sure. business and create some passive income. And then you do a couple of deals and you go, why am I doing the, the, the residential stuff? And Is that because it, it just took too much time? Or why, I mean, why, why not have it complement, continue, uh, you know, making good money from that? Yeah, it was really just the virtue of the timing f for us. And I do know people that do both and they're very successful at it. The timing for us was such that we had a couple of deals closing and we had to choose where we were going to put our time, effort, energy, and money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we basically weighed both options and we said, well, we can build this other company alongside of this, right? But I would, as one of the owners, have to train a chief operating officer to run the residential business while building a separate company and then hopefully bring somebody in to run that business as well. And the payoff didn't seem to be worth the, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And we said, well, let's just pick what we really want to do and what do we really want to do? And, that was really building relationships with investors, raising capital for uh, syndications into deals with institutional operators, 
where we could really be passive. We can look at it from an investor's angle and we can build relationships, which I think is what we really love to do. Gotcha. I mean, that's a great story for anyone who's like been in that space and, and thinking about scaling from, from one to the other. You kind of paint that picture that it's something that can be done. And I've known a lot of people who are in the residential and, uh, and flipping wholesaling, you know, that, that business where a lot of people get into, especially brokers in the beginning and they don't really know how to transition. You know, is it about finding the right deals? Is it about finding the right partners? Is it about, you know, what, how did you, you talked about why, why you transitioned, right? (laughs) But practically speaking, like, how did you actually make that happen? So we decided that we had some investors that were investing with us in the residential space. They were funding some of our flips for us. And once we had the aha moment that we could pay less in taxes, we recognized that that could happen for our investors as well, mm-hmm. right? Even offsetting some of the taxes that they were paying from 1099s on the flips. So we decided, hey, we could raise some capital. I think the easiest way to get into this business is not trying to find, underwrite, and acquire a deal. It's actually going to an operator that has an existing deal and offering to fund it. And so that's what we did. We looked around for operators that we that had a track record that had deal flow and we said look this is what we're trying to do and you know much to our surprise the community is very open yes. with trying to help right if if you come to somebody and you can bring some value they're very open to giving you the same hand up that somebody gave them at some mm-hmm. point and that's what we found in our first partner you know and uh, we've done three ground up self storage facilities with that partner we've raised all the capital he's done all the work and cube smart is now managing all of them but over 35 million dollars worth of property just because we started networking right i mean you're the king mm-hmm. of it just networking with people trying to figure out who do i know like and trust who am i trying to replicate who can help me out how can i help them out and that's what we did we said to a operator we said hey it looks like you have a deal we can bring X amount of dollars and we would like to partner with you on something. And he happened to be under contract on a self-storage facility. And he said, all right, well, why don't you guys come in with this on this deal with me? And, and that was it. That's I mean, awesome. we, did the, we did the first deal. It was uh, a little bit of jump and grow wings on the way down. We didn't know exactly what we were getting <laughs> into, but our first project wasn't like a 30 unit. It was an 1193 unit self-storage project that was ground up construction. $14 million project and we had to raise four or $5 million for it. And that was our first out of the gate kind of <laughs> shot out of the cannon. I love that. That's like, you know, what a lot of people like mentors and these type of people will tell you like, do not go big <laughs> first and your first deal. Yeah. I've but heard you're that proof, you're <laughs> proof that it can be done. And done, uh, you know, with flying colors. And it was with our with the right partner, right? I right. mean, it wasn't because of us. I, I wouldn't suggest doing that as your first deal when you have to figure out the construction management, the asset management, property management, all going in blind with $5 million of other people's money. But with the right partner, with the right, you know, uh, track record, then I do suggest that. I mean, why not? Right. Mm-hmm. And then what was the benefit was instead of going to these conferences and reading a bunch of books, I mean, I was in the deal. We were on the phones with the lenders. We were on the phones with the property managers. And, you know, so we were getting that experience from within the deal, which that's invaluable experience, right? I mean, yeah. you can only read so much. I mean, you know, quick story about that deal was we actually broke ground probably two months later than we needed to be because we were 
getting <laughs> gopher tortoises that needed to get relocated from the piece of land because it had to get, you know, the environmental people wanted us to relocate those. Wow. And, um, and that's just part of why we waited two months to break ground. And, you know, we, who knew it was gopher tortoise season and we needed it to be 70 degrees for more than three days. And it was a cold snap in Florida and Orlando for the first time in like a decade. And it was just one of those comedy of errors, but you know, you, you hear those stories from other people, but living in and experiencing it and trying to have the conversation with the township and the environmental people, mm-hmm. you know, that's invaluable experience. And it was fun to kind of learn that way. That's awesome. It's a great suggestion. You know what? I'm actually probably going to take some of that practical advice and, uh, and apply it. <laughs> You know, looking, looking myself, and I'm sure you can relate to this at where you were at. Um, for me personally, I'm kind of at a stage where I'm trying to figure out myself. And I'm sure there are a lot of listeners here as well trying to figure out, well, how can I scale? How can I grow my business? How can I transition into doing something a little more actively involved? And I think you've hit the nail on the head here, Steve, where you're talking about not trying to learn everything all at once and not trying to do everything all at once, but finding those right partners and bringing capital to the table because that's where you can add value and seemingly the most uh, you know easiest barrier to entry for some obviously raising capital is not the easiest sure. thing to do and it's not necessarily for everyone but i love that that's um that's great advice let me ask you about something specifically that that you do in your deals that i'm quite intrigued by fascinated by i know others that do it as well and but love to hear your perspective on this which is the aspect of impact investing you know so for those people who don't know what impact investing is uh, essentially it's you know a way to give back through to charity through the actual deal itself so touch on that maybe elaborate a little bit how you do that how you go about doing that yeah. So it's really the heart behind the business. I mean, we love creating income for ourselves. We love doing it for our investors as well, but there's no shortage of need in the world, right? And part of our call as, uh, as people of faith is to satisfy some of that need. And, um, I was trying to figure out how do I give more abundantly now before I make it quote unquote there. Right. And I think everybody has a there number in their head where it's like, Oh, once I have this in the bank, I've made it. I didn't want to wait for that number. I wanted to start giving more abundantly now. And, you know, just through some prayer, it was pretty clear that we could carve out a percentage of ownership in every single deal that we do for a given nonprofit. So it, it kind of creates the passive income for us, it creates passive income for our investors. And then in every single deal that we do, it creates passive income and some upside at the end for these nonprofits over a five or seven year period of time. And we've- so is this, uh, so you actually carve out a percentage of ownership within the deal itself. So they're going to be getting passive income. They're going to get like the distributions as other, another investor would. So to an, that was the theory behind it, right? In practice, right, right. it doesn't actually work that way only because you create what they call unintended business income tax for a nonprofit right. entity through that. So what we do is we just have in the operating agreement, you know, whatever our split is, a percentage of ours is going to a donor advised fund. And then that fund distributes it to those nonprofits. So it's a little bit more work and accounting on our end, but mm-hmm. so that the nonprofit doesn't get whacked with extra taxes that it doesn't need to, we set it up that right. way. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, in essence, it's a percentage of the deal, but that's really flown, fl- it has to flow through 
to uh, our entity to theirs so it doesn't become a taxable event. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's something that anyone listening to this who hasn't considered something like that, I mean, if you are passionate about charity, like here's an easy way to do it. It doesn't necessarily just have to be when you make it, like you said, when you make it and when you're making a lot of money or when you get that distribution, um, you know, set it up now because even if they're not necessarily getting the funds now, but the fact that you've made that intention and you've made that kind of in the contract, in the part of the deal, it's really to a certain extent considered as if you've already uh, you know started that process. Yeah. I mean, I think you can start small, right? You can grow in the grace of giving. You don't have to give 15% of a $40 million right. deal away. You can start by saying, Hey, I'm going to give 1% of my earnings to mm-hmm. this and just start the process and then grow. Try to make it 2% the next deal, 3% the next deal, 10%, 15%. My goal is to be able to give 90% away of some of these deals in the future. And you know, you can really start to see a significant impact in these different communities of these nonprofits um, almost immediately. You know, and the one thing that, you know, so what really started this was I had a missionary from the Philippines going out and doing uh, amazing work, saving girls from sex trafficking in the Philippines. And she would come back for Thanksgiving or Christmas and the holidays, and she would come and try to fundraise. She'd sit at my kitchen table and try mm-hmm. to get 10, 20, $100 a month from us to support the mission. And, you know, this is the time where people need to recharge right, mm-hmm. with their families. They need to slow down and they need to figure out if, um, you know, what they're going to do when they go back. And they shouldn't be out fundraising was my thought. And we found out that like, hey, this was something that kept coming up. And, you know, now we can find out how much do you need on a yearly basis? And then we mm-hmm. can start to try to impact them and they can start to see some consistency in the fundraising. Right. So. It's a very thoughtful way of giving charity as well, because you're being more proactive with your charity giving as opposed to reactive, which I think a lot of people are. Um, I mean, you mentioned the donor advised funds. That's that's being very proactive. That's taking a step in the right direction where you're actually going ahead and allocating money from the get-go. And then that can be allocated uh, further to those different charities that need them. But, you know, like I said, people, in my experience has been as well, I, I fundraised for a long time as well. Um, I had a nonprofit for, for a number of years and I'm very aware of all the challenges that come along with that. You know, if you had someone to come to you and say, well, how much is it that you need? And let's figure out, you know, from the get-go, how can we make that work yeah. um, from the beginning as opposed to, um, you know, how much would you like me to give? And then and they'll never tell you the entire amount. You know, they, they want to be, I once had someone come, come to me and say, you know, we're looking to, to raise X amount of money. Um, and they, they were happy to get a hundred, like you said, $20, $100, you know, and right you know, keep going to 20, 30, 50, a hundred more people to right. make, make that happen. But when you approach it with, well, how can we actually make this, uh, help? Yeah, you can back into it. Right. And then they can, exactly. they can really see where their funds are and try to figure it out from that. Amazing. So, yeah. So Steve, let's, let's take this opportunity. Let's transition into the final four over here. These are four questions that I ask all of my guests towards the end of the episode. And the first question for you is what is the worst job that you ever had? So the worst job, I don't know if it's the worst or the strangest job, but I actually, when I was 18 years old, used to do removals for funeral homes. So I used to go, you know, if somebody passes away in their house, how do they get to the funeral home? Well, that's a transport service. And they have, you know, so my beeper would go off at two o'clock in the morning and I'd have to put a suit and tie on and go to somebody's house and remove their loved one and bring them to a funeral home. And 
It was actually uh, a very interesting job, as you might imagine. We picked people up from hospitals or inside their own homes, and mm-hmm. it was uh, it was interesting. And as you might imagine, paid pretty well because there's not a wealth of people applying for that job. Right. <laughs> yeah, but definitely, you have to have probably very strong uh, stomach muscles to <laughs> to be able to you know endure that type of work wow that's that's very that's challenging that would have been a challenging job yes it was and seeing the loved ones right through that time yes, right they yeah, just lost course. somebody but that was kind of part of what i thought was honoring about it as well was you got to go in and kind of be a support system and show respect and things like that during a difficult time in somebody's life so as difficult as it was, it was also really satisfying. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, anything having to do with, you know, really any life cycle event, um, you know, is always very satisfying, rewarding, and, you know, very meaningful, hopefully, if done with the right respect, um, you know, meaningful for the people involved as well. So, wow, that's that's a unique, <laughs> definitely unique one. We've never that's had a anyone... Different one, right? Yeah, never had anyone uh, talk about that before. <laughs> Um, but what is second question for you? What's a, a book that you've read that's given you a paradigm shift? Well, I mean, you know, you, outside of religious texts, right? Because those are the most impactful and most paradigm shifting, I think. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I would say Never Split the Difference was probably the most shifting in terms of my mindset on how to have a negotiation properly and build relationship in a different way. Probably the best book on negotiation I've ever read. 100%. Yeah. Hands down, the best book on, the, on negotiating. If you've never heard of that book before, I highly recommend you checking it out. Yeah. Just incredible. So never yeah. split the difference. And um, yeah. So third question for you, what is a skill or talent that you would like to learn? So I'd still like to learn how to surf. My business partner is a big surfer, grew up on the Jersey Shore, which is difficult to surf. Uh, I've heard it said, if you can surf there, you can surf anywhere. And I tried once in Costa Rica when I went on a business trip with him. I did stand up for that brief second and it gave me that moment of, wow, I'd love to be able to figure out how to do this. And uh, so, yeah, even late in life, right? I'm coming up on 40 and I still think that it's definitely in my future. So I'd like to learn how to surf. There you go. All right. Well, believe it or not, that you're... That's not a unique answer on the Weiss Advice podcast. <laughs> ah, you got a lot of guys. <laughs> We've got some people we might put together, uh, you know, surfing. Surf trip. <laughs> I like it. Uh, amazing. A mastermind so, on the water. Right, exactly. I mean, listen, they're all real estate people surfing, the real estate surfing club, you know? <laughs> I could see it. So fourth and final question for you, Steve, what does success mean to you? So I steal this quote from um, from John Maxwell. He says, my definition of success is for those that know me best to love me most. And it's really the people that do know you that you know have an intimate relationship with you to think that you are the best version of yourself, to really love the person that you have become or grown into. And you know, that just means that I'm trying to strive to be the best version of myself, to be the best version of who God made me to be, and to respect and honor the people that are closest to me in such a way that they feel valued and, you know, they, they kind of love us the most. So the businesses are great, right? Uh, making capital is great. Making money is good. Trips are fun. But at the end of the day, if you're not leaving a legacy that is defined by your integrity and your family and your relationships, 
then it's all for nothing, right? The Bible says, what good is a man, what good is it for a man to gain the world and lose his soul? And our goal is to make sure that we are steadfastly looking at uh, how we're building the right legacy. Absolutely. I love that answer. And a lot of people get lost, you know, the trees uh, from the forest. And I think when you realize what life is all about, and like like you said, you know, coming from a, a very religious and spiritual perspective, it's very easy to understand, but a lot of people get lost in the business world and it's very easy on social media and things like that to kind of misprioritize or prioritize the wrong things when you, know, you could be spending this quality time with, you know, with your kids or those who you love the most. And I think we all, we all to a certain extent can relate to that and hopefully are prioritizing that in the right way so that we can share in that success. Absolutely. Finally, Steve, where can our listeners reach out to you or find you if they want to? Yes, you can go to integrityhg.com. Integrity Holdings Group is the name of the company. You can sign up for our investor club. You can listen to our podcast, which is free from Wall Street. And um, yeah, sign up, get in contact with us, kind of take a look at what you're doing. If anybody has any questions about the donor advice fund stuff or any deals that we're doing, always reach out. We love to have conversations with old and new friends alike. Awesome. Thank you again for, for joining us and spending some time with us today in your, Thanks, in your new home in South Carolina. Yeah, man. I appreciate you having me on. It's always good to catch up and hopefully we'll have you down here soon. All righty. Well, yeah, listen, I love the, the Southern hospitality. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, to our listeners, thank you again for joining us. And remember, the best advice comes only when you ask. Thanks for listening to the Free From Wall Street podcast. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating and review and let us know what you think. 